Hello and welcome to Season 1 of Coloured Souls. My name is Jamie Gladstone and here we'll discuss current affairs in race policy, developments in education, African, Caribbean, South American history, post-colonial literature and decolonial thoughts. If you would like to join in the discussion, please email me at jamie at colouredsouls.co.uk or find me on Twitter under the name ColouredSoulsUK. Throughout history, we have seen language used to discriminate, humiliate and subjugate people of colour. So today, we will explore the question, do we subjugate ourselves with our language? So just listen to many rap or hip-hop artists and you'll hear many racial stereotypes flying around, along with the extremely prominent use of the N-word. In all honesty, I'm a fan of both rap and hip-hop as I hear them as modern forms of poetry which highlight many of the problems faced in black communities. However, on the surface they can appear abrasive to black society and seemingly work to perpetrate the images that have been used to hold black communities in the economic and social hinterlands but have been bound since the pre- and post-slavery hierarchies were established. In order to appreciate the significance of this use of language, let's take a look at the history surrounding BAME communities, and in particular the Caribbean, and the ways in which language has impacted upon them. Much of this episode has been researched through the work of Denali Flores Rodriguez, uh, Franz Fanon, Albert Memmi, and many other studies and works of literature. In Black Skin, White Masks, Franz Fanon explored the dynamics of language as a practical way to understand the ill effects of colonialism and racism on society. This text also represents Fanon's most serious attempt to understand the Caribbean psyche in relation to a wider community suffering from a common colonial pathology. Much like the larger Caribbean context Fanon came from and knew, the concept of language being the controlling factor in a colonial arsenal has faded into the background in favour of more concrete or pressing examples of colonial dominance. That is to say, Language is perceived as only one of many symptoms of a larger colonial pathology and not as a primary cause of structural oppression. Trans-Caribbean authors' literature provides a means for measuring the normative uses of language and cultural discourse in the Caribbean. Rather than viewing literature as an expression or reflection of much of Western culture marked by empty intellectualism, trans-Caribbean authors reveal and defy the patterns of structural oppression inherent in colonial texts. In the Trans-Caribbean narratives typical of these writers, language is central in understanding the problematic relations between oppressors and oppressed. In their hands, fiction becomes a means to understand reality, and this is evident in the works of Sam Selvin, George Lamming, John Agard, and many other powerful Caribbean voices. Not only did Fanon undertake a significant effort to make his readers aware of the socio-historical and psychological circumstances of the colonial subject, he also asserted in Black Skin, White Masks that language means above all assuming a culture and bearing the weight of civilization. Fanon further explains that the possession of language implies empowerment as it confirms people's cultural adequacy, making reference to the citizens of Martinique, and I'll put in quotes, bettering themselves by learning proper French in France, which elevated them above the Creole-speaking islanders. Later, in The Wretched of the Earth, he explains how language becomes a weapon used by the oppressor to dehumanise the oppressed. When the colonist speaks of the colonised, he uses zoological terms. 
Allusion is made to the slithery movements of the yellow race, the odours from the native quarters, to the hordes, the stink, the swarming, the seething, and the gesticulations. In his endeavours at description and finding the right word, the colonist refers constantly to the bestiary. The European seldom has a problem with figures of speech. Throughout The Wretched of the Earth, Fanon makes a point of asserting the real implications language has for the oppressed and the colonised. Paradoxically, and even after Fanon's research, the politics of language in the Caribbean are rarely elevated outside of the purely literary context. Literature was often deployed to deflect attention away from the importance of language in influencing perceptions of cultural identity, whilst simultaneously serving to suppress criticism from those opposed to the way it restricted viewpoints. For many scholars in the Caribbean, language became a matter of form and fiction rather than meaning and truth. The belief that literature is detached from the socio-economic and political realities of the region was entrenched in educational practices that privileged technical skills over critical knowledge. This is something that at times we still see in the UK. Ultimately this had, and continues to have, a detrimental effect, as Caribbean educational systems produce technically proficient graduates who are more interested in supporting the intellectual status quo than they were in attacking its explicit practices of intellectual indoctrination. Despite these challenges, language remains to this day a site of cultural struggle in the Caribbean, whether it is the legacy of the colonizers, the weapon of the oppressed, or neither. Language still finds, in the words of Fanon, a safe haven in a refuge of smouldering emotions. This is juxtaposed with the ways in which language has been used as a barometer with which to test the intelligence or status of a person within society. For example, Fanon states in the opening lines of Black Skin White Masks, We attach a fundamental importance to the phenomenon of language, and consequently consider the study of language as essential for providing us with one element in the understanding of the black man's dimension of being for others. It is being understood that to speak is to exist absolutely for the other. He goes on to discuss the interrelations between members of black communities and the ways in which a black man will behave differently around white men than he would around other black men. This holds some water in that the unconscious programming that we are exposed to leads to a change in body language and even in the ways in which we use our oral language. It is clear when we break this down to the ways in which you would speak with your friends as youths, uh, discourse saturated in jargon and slang that only you and your peers would understand. This language was used almost exclusively within the community and parents, teachers and other adults would find this language difficult to understand. The same could be said for the creolized languages of the Caribbean, whereby the African influences of our roots interweave among the European languages, thus creating unique languages that bear only some resemblance to either, their to either of their origin languages. Taken purely in a politically racial standpoint, in the words of Fanon and the use of language in the Antilles, the more the black Antillean assumes the French language, the whiter he gets, that is to say, the closer he comes to being a true human being. Therefore, by having command of the language of the colonial power, the more respected you would be in the society. Still not an equal, but more respected. So think about it in this context. Language was stolen from many African communities, 
Not just through the atrocities of slavery, but through colonialism and the wave of missionaries that swept through the African continent. Communities lost their religions, their histories, their very identities. John Paul Sartre likens the practice to manufacturing a native elite, whereby they picked out promising adolescents, they branded them, as with a red-hot iron, with the principles of Western culture. They stuffed their mouths full of high-sounding phrases, grand glutinous words that stuck to the teeth. He continues with a comment of how these, and he says, walking lies are returned to their communities, again, whitewashed, and with nothing left to say to their brothers. They simply echo the words that they heard in the major European cities, and this would then be imitated in the local communities. This is further exemplified in Albert Memmi's The Colonizer and the Colonized, in which he discusses colonial bilingualism. He states that, The colonized is saved from illiteracy, only to fall into linguistic dualism. Although he saw that many of the colonized would never have the good fortune to suffer the tortures of colonial bilingualism, having nothing but their native tongue, which is neither written nor read, permitting only uncertain and poor oral development. This led to a cultural paradox in that the possession of two languages simply provided two tongues in conflict. Furthermore, the tongue in which the colonized express their feelings, emotions, wishes and desires, the very things which make us human, was the same tongue which was valued the least. What does this say of the value of the humanity of the colonized? The colonized had to acquire the language of the colonizer in order to communicate those, as Sartre called, grand glutinous words which stuck to the teeth. Yet this was still not enough to garner the respect at a human level of which the prospect of that language held. Even with the knowledge of the colonizer's language, the colonized were then subjected to criticism on how the language was used. This can be referenced in The Tempest, where Shakespeare demonstrates common attitudes towards language as a symbol of power when Caliban curses Prospero. You taught me language, and my profit on it is I know how to curse. The Red Plague rid you for learning me your language. Most scholars agree that the quote exemplifies the problematic relationship between colonizer and colonized, in which language becomes the sign of an imposed aesthetic. One cannot overlook that Caliban is an anagram for cannibal, a term which was forever linked to Caribbean natives through the cannibal law. Michael Palenthia Roth explains the law as the legal provision that allowed Spaniards to enslave, transport and arbitrarily sell all natives that posed resistance towards colonial dominance, henceforth identified as cannibals. The word cannibal is derived from cannibales, the Spanish name for the Carib people, a West Indian tribe formerly well known for their practice of cannibalism. The cannibal law, like the language itself, provided the means by which to classify and oppress the Caribbean people, as language was used to define and to be defined by. In Deinali Flores Rodriguez's article in The Black Scholar, Language, Power and Resistance, rereading Fanon in a Trans-Caribbean Context, she discusses an extreme use of language in what is known as the Parsley Massacre, which took place on the border of Haiti and the Dominican Republic during the dictatorial regimes of Francois Duvalier and Rafael Leonidas Trujillo. In October 1937, 
the Dominican Republic's dictator, Rafael Leonidas Trujillo, ordered the killings of all Haitians within Dominican borders after accusing them of thievery. People responded to his call, and over the span of five days, Dominican troops, civilians, and local authorities killed people of Haitian or suspected Haitian heritage by whatever means at hand – guns, machetes, clubs, and knives. To ascertain nationality or ethnic origin, the victimizers would hold up a sprig of parsley and ask for its name. Those who could not pronounce the Spanish word perjil became immediate targets of the vicious mobs. Many scholars estimate that there were approximately 30,000 direct victims of these events. This sickening image only highlights the ways in which language has been used to control peoples of African descent. Although this isn't exclusively an injustice suffered by Africans. Similar discrimination occurs in Puerto Rico, where there was a long public service campaign in the mid-1990s to encourage the correct use of the Spanish language. Under the slogan, Idioma Defectuoso, Pensamiento Defectuoso, or Defective Language, Defective Thought, sponsored by a well-recognized private university, the campaign consisted initially of three television spots of 60 seconds each that reunited some of the most popular Puerto Rican figures of that time, including writers, television and radio personalities, top musicians, bankers and news broadcasters. The spot encouraged the audience to speak Spanish right and with pride, and ends with the words, El idioma es la sangre del espíritu, or the language is the blood of the soul. The advert emphasized the formal and technical aspects of the Spanish language and tied it to being a true Puerto Rican. The public figures that appeared in the spot condemned the use of loanwords from English in common conversations, and as such, English was a threat to pure Puerto Rican culture, an idea that disenfranchised the majority of Puerto Ricans on the island and was extrapolated to Puerto Ricans born and raised in the United States. So what does all of this have to do with subjugating ourselves to the language that we use? It highlights that language is more than just a means by which to communicate. It is the very fabric of our identities and has been used to measure the supposed intelligence of a person or an entire culture. Let's take a quick look at an example of how media has stereotyped the ways in which black people speak. So let's very briefly take a look at an example from the movie Dumbo, the much-loved story of the plucky elephant with ears far too large for his own good. Whilst there has been much debate over the apparent racist messages within the film, we're not going to discuss those here. Indeed, the song of the roustabouts raises some eyebrows, but instead let's focus on the crows and the ways in which they speak. Yes, the leader of the crows was named Jim Crow, and his movements were clearly modelled on the abhorrent image of the lead minstrel from the show, and as we know, was the name of the horrific laws which subjugated the black community in the deep south of the United States, thus highlighting the cultural norms of America in the 30s and 40s when the movie was made and subsequently released. But it was the way he spoke that really caught me. The human voice of Jim Crow was Cliff Edwards, who also voiced Jiminy Cricket. He was a white actor who took on a verbal blackface to speak, sing, and as he called it, a Negro dialect. Interestingly, Disney have tried to cover this dialect up in a Dumbo songbook by taking the original But I be done seen about everything when I see an elephant fly to But I think I will have seen everything when I see an elephant fly. So they've, they've completely changed the sound of that. And they've also removed the roustabouts and the crows entirely from the remake. In fact, there are very few black or brown faces in the entire production. As for the use of language in the original, 
Well, this worked to perpetrate the stereotype that members of the African-American community had a poor grasp of the language, something which has been ridiculed countless times in American literature and film. And this is an image that has plagued black communities for decades, and I believe will continue to do so. So with all of this in mind, I'll ask the question again. Do we subjugate ourselves with the language that we use? Well, we've clearly seen that language has been used to hold black communities down and to stunt the forward progression of said communities, but it runs much deeper than that. See, language burns in our very identities, and as such is an outward expression of how others perceive us. Therefore, we should take care with our use of language and ask ourselves, how would we like to be viewed by people outside of our communities? Let's focus for a moment on hip-hop and rap. First off, as I said, I'm a fan of both subgenres of music, but the flagrant use of the N-word in a majority of songs always left me feeling somewhat uncomfortable. Part of the discomfort comes from the demographic that traditionally listens to rap and hip-hop, which are predominantly white audiences. This alongside the, at times, misogynistic lyrics and excess of bling and cars in some of the music videos, plays on many, many stereotypes. It fascinates me to think whilst listening to, we'll use for example, Childish Gambino's music, in which there are some absolutely stunning lyrical flashpoints in his songs and his talent for rhythm and rhyme could challenge many accomplished poets. Yet the use of the N-word permeates many of his tracks. This is juxtaposed with the track This Is America and its accompanying video. If you haven't seen the video, I employ you to check it out on YouTube as it challenges many of the problems the black community face in America with regard to gun crime, racial profiling, and again, that image of the Jim Crow black America. In fact, I would highly recommend listening to his music in general. The power of the lyricism of, for example, the Wu-Tang Clan, Akala, and many other influential artists shouldn't be taken for granted. They blaze the trail, and they continue to do so as more and more members of black communities discover the messages in their music. After all, where else are we going to find the truth of the struggles and strengths within our communities? The predominantly white-run media have a history of only showing the worst of our plights. Think about Band-Aid. So this aside, how does the N-word prevent black communities from progressing? The word itself carries with it much of the hatred and disgust directed toward black Africans and African Americans. Historically, it defined, limited, made fun of and ridiculed all blacks. It was a term of exclusion, a verbal reason for discrimination. Whether used as a noun, verb or adjective, it strengthened the stereotype of the lazy, stupid, dirty, worthless nobody. The word has been used in many creative ways to denigrate members of the black communities across the globe. I'm going to give you some examples here and I'm going to apologise in advance for the use of the n-word. Nigger lover, a derogatory term aimed at whites lacking the necessary loathing of blacks. Nigger luck, exceptionally but undeserved good luck. Nigger flicker, a small knife or razor with one side heavily taped to preserve the user's fingers. Nigger heaven. Designated places, usually the balcony where blacks were forced to sit, for example in an integrated movie theatre or a church. Nigger knocker. An axe handle or weapon made from an axe handle. Nigger rich. Deeply in debt, but flamboyant. Nigger shooter. A slingshot. Nigger steak. A slice of liver or a cheap piece of meat. Nigger stick, a police officer's baton. Nigger tip, leaving a small tip or no tip in a restaurant. Nigger in a woodpile, a conceived motive or unknown factor affecting a situation in an adverse way. Nigger work, demeaning or menial tasks. 
So nigger as a word is also used to describe a dark shade of colour, so for example nigger brown or nigger black. The status of whites that mix together with blacks, nigger breaker, nigger dealer, nigger driver, killer, stealer, worshipper, and looking. And anything belonging to or linked to African Americans, so for example a nigger baby or boy or girl or mouth or feet or preacher or job or love or culture, college, music, etc. The n-word has been the ultimate American insult. It's used to offend other ethnic groups too. So for example, Jews are called white niggers, Arabs are called sand niggers, Japanese yellow niggers. America's created a racial hierarchy with whites at the top and blacks at the bottom and John Lennon wrote the infamous song, Women are the niggers of the world. So just on that last point, Bette Midler faced fire in 2018 when she quoted the song on her Twitter feed. Although she later deleted the tweet and apologised, she initially defended her actions aggressively. This then brought to the public lips the question, is the word still offensive? The simple answer is an overwhelming yes. The word is still just as powerful and offensive as it was when it was coined. The significance of the word has not diminished at all, if anything it has gained strength in its hiding place. If we look at other offensive words that have their roots very much grounded in the, in the UK, such as piccaninny, sambo or spade, we see that these aren't thrown around like they weigh nothing. Simply put, these words are going to cause offence and nobody wants to own them. That brings me to the notion of ownership. Can a, can a community own a word, thus diminishing its meaning and impact? Many will argue that yes, you can. And a clear example of this is in the LGBTQ plus community and the offensive words that have been used to denigrate members of that community. The notion that the word is ours and therefore we can use it how we like is noble, yes, but fundamentally flawed. For when words like this are heard, it produces a similar feeling to the one of a, when a swear word is dropped at a school, a mixture of awe and fear of being caught. For the forces that want to keep black societies in place, there is no longer a need to use such language. When the very people that you are trying to label as worthless are doing that job for you, why waste the energy? Why will they try and prevent you from denigrating yourself when all you are doing is proving them right? From a psychological perspective, would you call yourself a worthless loser all the time, a failure, or worse, a rapist or a murderer? If the answer to any of these is no, then why fetter yourself to the whipping post of the past with the flagrant use of the n-word? The quickest and most efficient way of destroying the strength in unity is to have communities do it for themselves. Benin is a solid example of this, whereby they have a phrase that pervades the lack of trust of community which loosely translates to, one could sell you and make you go away. See that hangar of colonialism beats in the minds of the politicians, making political parties now impossible to form, and continues to portray the age-old myth that democracy cannot and will not exist successfully on the African continent. I'll leave this here with a final thought. Richard Pryor, when he visited Africa, said this. It's nice to have pride about your shit. I went home to the motherland, and everybody should go home to Africa. Everybody, especially black people. <clears throat> really, man, there is so much to see there for the eye and the heart of the black people. Because white people, you'll go there and you get ideas. Well, that's where the black people in America should be, walking around with sticks. <laughs> you'll get the wrong idea. <laughs> but, man, you go, I went to the mother and my roots, right? 700 million black people. Not one of them motherfuckers knew me. I looked in every phone book in Africa. 
I didn't find one goddamn prize. I saw one familiar name, Jabo Walker. I called that up. They say he's in Arizona. One thing I got out of it was magic I'd like to share with you, you know, it's like I was leaving and I was sitting in the hotel and a voice said to me, he said, look around, what do you see? And I said, I see all colors of people doing everything, you know, and the voice said, do you see any niggas? I said, no. I said, you know why? Because there aren't any. And it hit me. Like a shot, man. I started crying and shit. I was sitting there. I said, yeah, I've been here three weeks. I haven't even said it. I haven't even thought it. And it made me say, oh, my God, I've been wrong. I've been wrong. I got to regroup my shit. I mean, I said, I ain't going to never call another black man a nigga. <laughs> you know, because we never was no niggas. That's a word that's used to describe our own wretchedness. And we perpetuate it now, because it's dead. That word's dead. We men and women, we come from, we come from the first people on the earth. <laughs> you know, the first people on the earth were black people. Because anthropologists, white anthropologists, so the white people go, that could be true, you know. Yeah, Dr. Leakey and them found people remains five million years ago in Africa. You know them motherfuckers didn't speak French. <laughs> so black people, we the first people had thought, right? We was the first one to say, where the fuck am I? <laughs> and how do you get to Detroit? So you can take it for what it's worth. I know, like, I ain't but I'm just talking about my feelings about it. And I don't want them hip white people coming to me, calling me no nigger, or telling me nigger jokes. I don't like it. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it's uncomfortable to me. I don't like it when black people say it to me. I really don't no more. It's nothing. It don't mean nothing. So I love y'all, and you take that with you. I guess y'all say <laughs> The origins of the word can be traced back to Latin with Niger, meaning black. This became Negro in English to represent a black person, Negro in Spanish, Negro in Portuguese, Negra in French. Remember also that Negus means king in the Ethiopian Semitic languages. Think about how a word that empowered black communities has been bastardized to subjugate and ask yourself this. If you're truly trying to reclaim the power of the word, why give more power to the language of the oppressor when you could empower the tongue of the oppressed? Thank you for listening to today's show. And if you'd like to join in the discussion, please email me, jamie at colouredsouls.co.uk or find me on Twitter as Coloured Souls UK. To be notified of every time a new episode goes live, please hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app or visit coloredsouls.co.uk forward slash podcast. If you'd like to contribute to the ongoing production of this show, then please buy me a book. Uh, visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash colored souls. Thank you again for listening and I'll speak with you soon.